Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall. Hello and uh, welcome to CTN. To learn more about the show, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, the topic today is a rather interesting and a timely one. Enabling an environmentally and socially conscious enterprise. So data security and privacy, everyone talks about it, but are you doing that sufficiently? Are you talking a lot about race and gender diversity and inclusion, but are you doing that effectively? Are your business practices ethical and transparent? Is the worker health and safety getting the same attention and focus as you do with your product safety and quality, the investments that you do there. We have this tug of war between what is the right thing for us to do as business and what is right for the stakeholders and or shareholder and the profitability you know, metric that we are pursuing. So what is being done where if we take care of the social and environmental issues and inclusion issues, it's seen that customers are more willing to help. Employees are more likely to stay engaged. So the question, the big question is, what is your organization doing to fulfill this rather increasing demand to become a more environmentally and socially conscious enterprise? And since we are CTN CIO Talk Network, I am going to ask the question, how can IT help? To discuss all this, we have Todd Britton, who is the Chief Information Officer and Associate Vice President for University of Laverne. Hey, Todd, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Great. Great to have you. And we also have Helen Norris, Vice President and Chief Information Officer with Chapman University. Hey, Helen, how are you doing? Doing well today, Sanjog. How about yourself? Can't complain. Life is beautiful. God is yeah. kind. I look for <laughs> that. Yeah. So, so let's start with you, Todd. So I, I gave a rather detailed introduction of the premise of this discussion. And we know that these things are important. One is to talk about it on a show like this or in our town hall meetings, etc. Another is to actually have some concrete plans and practical approaches to making sure that we have a strategy, a vision, and then we're executing on these strategies and vision so that the desired outcomes are obtained. Where do you think we are? Well, I appreciate the question. It's extremely timely for us as well. Uh, So I'd like to kind of pick apart the data security privacy piece from the diversity, equity, inclusion piece. I'll um, talk about the latter first, which is around diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically around race and gender. And I think that... um, We've done a good job. We've created a cabinet level position many years ago that has institutional focus, not just a single office, a single person, but an entire group that is watching for DEI concerns. Um, We've specifically called it out and made it an integral part of our strategic plan. So it not only has visibility for those who are focused on it on a daily basis, but rather our board of trustees, uh, the cabinet, our students, faculty, and staff. Uh, We've also done a number of trainings, both informal and formal, across the entire enterprise for faculty and managers. And we've made sure that the students have a mechanism and staff 
uh, to report anything that they find might be an affront to those kind of espoused values around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there's an accountability piece to it. So we are by no means complete, but I think that we have a strong, solid foothold in that regard, and we're making very substantive forward progress uh, over the last few years. And I feel like in a lot of ways, we're ahead of the curve. So based on Todd's response, Helen, uh, a quote comes to mind that lack of disease doesn't mean you're healthy, which means if a student or someone as an employee doesn't report that there is an issue, that doesn't mean there is none existing. And the fact that you built a strategy and a plan and you did some training, that doesn't mean it got adopted because you would not do a pull the plug test like you could do in a business continuity plan. That means you got to have some way of figuring out that whatever money and uh, time and effort that's been put in into even the planning part and training part or whatever else that you've created, is that truly bringing you to that level which you can be proud of that, yes, we have an environmentally and socially conscious enterprise, which I'm referring to as something which is realistic as benchmarks or metrics, which we can on a regular basis, on regular checkpoints, measure and ensure that everything is in place like you would do with any other business. Number one question, do you think we are there yet? Is it still an art form or has it converted into a science? And if it's not fully reached there yet, in your view, what's missing? Um, Well, I I think we are definitely, most definitely not there yet, certainly around the topic Uh, that Todd just addressed about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, That's true, I think, at my organization. And I think it's pretty much true everywhere. It's a long, long journey. And uh, to Todd's point, we've made a lot of progress, but we, we still have a long way to go. And we can look at even, um, numbers of, you know, what our diversity numbers look like across the country, uh, around our leadership. We can look at our own, for speaking from a higher ed perspective, we can look at our own students and, and see um, some areas where we clearly need to, to uh, have better outcomes. Uh, and so I, I think we're on a long, long journey. We've definitely made progress. Uh, I think measuring is very, very hard because it is such a long journey around uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so you, you can actually become discouraged because it's, uh, as you look at how things are going, because it takes it takes time um, to, to make those changes. And so I, I think it's looking for... Um, a, a more of a sense of inclusion uh, for different people. Um, you can measure that, I think, through, um, in, in the case of higher ed, we can measure it through student success. You know, if different groups are not succeeding, uh, part of that is about they don't feel that they belong in the institution. So looking at measurements like that can help us. Um, 
for faculty and staff, particularly for staff, I'm thinking in the IT area, uh, turnover is a measure of success, right? If, if we, um, I, I work in IT, I'm a woman, uh, we know that there have been long uh, standing issues in, in IT for retention of women. So if we're continuing to see women leave IT at the rate that they that we've seen in the past, we're not making the progress. So looking at, at factors like that, oh, and finally, uh, I almost forgot, um, especially in a staff role, but also uh, for students, uh, surveying, asking people, it's like you said, just absence of disease doesn't mean we're well, right, as you said. But just because people aren't reporting that we're not doing well doesn't mean that we're doing well. So ask people, survey your staff to ask how you're doing uh, in, in these areas. Survey your students, in our case, to ask what we're doing, how we're doing, and what they need us to do to continue to make progress. So, Todd, in all honesty, do you think this is a feel-good topic where we are like weathermen to say, I'll predict something. If it doesn't happen, no one gets fired. <laughs> is it something that we should say, okay, I invested in something. I sat in a few meetings, did some planning and, and came up with some specific things that we will do. It's almost like you joining a nonprofit and like an NGO of sorts and, and doing something good for the society and where you're a volunteer and nobody is holding you accountable if you did it. Should it be elevated to becoming not cost, but instead of cost of doing business, cost of you retaining people, cost of you growing and growing your revenue and loyalty and every other business metric that you have? Can that be done? And yeah, you can say answer is yes. But is this being done in that spirit for it to really take a foothold? Because 10 years from now, if you have the same conversation, we could very well be giving same answers and we will still come across as correct or, or politically correct. But is that the right thing for us to do? What do you think? Yeah, I appreciate the question. I think that this isn't just lip service or a checkbox exercise, right? It's not something that you take a training here or do it once a year, like information security training and say, okay, I'm good there. Put that in a box and put it away. I think it really has to be woven into your culture and you have to reinforce it. You have to embed it in your curriculum into your outcomes that the faculty are held accountable mm -hmm. to make sure those metrics are met. The students are feeling it, to Helen's point earlier, surveying, getting a sense, a pulse, and understanding where people are sitting, and then really holding uh, many different variety of venues, talks, opportunities for individuals to engage uh, in those type of activities that really shows what we are doing and seek their feedback so that everyone can get a sense of belonging and also everyone can get a sense for that this is something that's done. This is a journey, as Helen said. And as we saw from the nationwide uh, narratives around this in the recent past, this is not something that's going to go away. And this has been a long-standing systemic problem. So because it's so um, metastasized, if you will, into a lot of organizations, we have to take a holistic approach to address it. And it has to be multi-year. It has to be included as a part of just the cost of doing business because not only is it the right thing, but it's something that we can all appreciate and engage with and make sure that it's done properly. 
Um, I, I'd like to comment on that too, Sanjog. I, I do think that the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the past has has been used a term earlier. Sometimes organizations have paid lip service to it and without, you know, and not really um, elevated it to a critical part of the business. I, I think we're beyond that. I, you know, we we have to address this. Organizations need to address this in order to survive. Um, when we think about our, you know, uh, right now, how, how difficult it is for us as IT professionals to hire people. Um, how, how can we as a country, the United States, become remain competitive if we don't have the workforce uh, to uh, manage our technology and to, uh, to, to keep us competitive with the rest of the world. We have to include everybody in order to have a, a, a really uh, productive workforce. So I, I really think it's about survival. Our demographics are changing. Um, and we have to figure this out. So it's 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 not a nice to have. It's a it's not a feel good. It, it's really about our survival. Let's take a quick break, listeners. When we come back, so Todd, when we start any initiatives, larger or small, we want to see progress, and there has to be something. So we did speak about benchmarks or metrics. So even if I keep that aside, and there is no so-called mathematical formula to figure out how well we're doing in these socially and environmentally conscious uh, strategies, right? So what should we be looking for? Something which we can measure in a tangible way or should we measure the momentum or we measure um, the excitement in the people who are joining hands if that's growing and then we're part of that bus because that bus, no matter how many people, including the driver on it, but if it doesn't have the fuel, and it's out of gas, it's not going to go forward. So are, should we look at the, the fuel or should we look at the driver or should we look at the people? I am sure you understand the analogy. So let's dig deeper when we come back. Listeners, please stay tuned. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjoke All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjoke All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjog Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Todd, let's talk about, if not hard metric. Something else which we can look at and at least feel good about all the effort and money and time and resources that are going. Should this be a soft thing like momentum or excitement or what else? So that we say we continue to invest. It's almost like you're convincing someone that if you're going to keep putting time, energy and resources in it, we should show some results of some type. So what is a reasonably okay result to report in these initiatives? 
Yeah, I think that it's a multifaceted type of thing. There are some feel-good aspects. Again, I go back to my statement before. It's not just a checkbox exercise. You say, we've done this, now we can move on. Um, it's a continuous improvement process. You're continually looking for for metrics that matter. You're continuing looking for how can I measure this? Because a lot of it is somewhat squishy, right? And so how do you determine how can you make sure that you're getting the outcomes you want? As I said earlier, you embed those learning outcomes into your learning objectives into the curriculum, right? You also survey your students and faculty. Uh, you also pay attention to those stories where the student stops by the multicultural center and shares an experience with them where they are not able to get any type of help for their college level work at home. And they need that outlet, that extra special tutor to give that one-on-one -on -one attention to help them to survive, to thrive, really. Um, I recall several commencement speeches. The last uh, happened for us on June, June 12th, rather. And a number of our students who are first-generation students uh, just tell these wonderful stories to say how being a successful citizen of the world, a global citizen coming through their bachelor's program with the University of Laverne, the way that they've been in bed, all of their learnings to be better global citizens, to be stronger and to make more out of their lives than maybe their family even dreamt of that possibility. It's that upward mobility, mobility and access that this diversity, equity, inclusion allows us. So we have these stories where students are telling us, I would have never been able to see myself graduating, but now that I am, I'm gonna move on to be a doctor. I'm gonna move on to be a president here. And so it's that access and that mobility enabling um, efforts that we try to make sure that our students can thrive and shine in the way they need to. So again, I think it's something that we should be doing. It's not just something we say, check, we're, we're good with it. <laughs> Uh, it's ongoing. It's a journey. So, Helen, look at the other dimensions of being environmentally and or socially conscious, which also includes, let's start with, say, data security and privacy. If you think about these two areas, these are, yeah, you have invested in role. You've got a whole security department. People <laughs> are investing in privacy, but that's been done so that there is a because of a federal mandate or you don't get ransomware or you're not getting stuck. Not done because you value data security and privacy of the people you serve. Well, I'll push back a little bit on that, Sanjog. I think it's certainly true that we many we, we do approach um, those topics from a compliance perspective. We want to comply with uh, with the law. We don't want to, and in fact, there's also a very, uh, in case, particularly in information security, there is an economic reason for us to, to, um, to pay attention to it because it's simply, it, it costs us a fortune if, mm -hmm. if we have an, a, a data security incident. But I, I think underlying it, there is a, a the value that we have as an organizational around the privacy of the data of our students and our faculty and staff. And a couple of examples that come to mind um, during the pandemic, we, like every other university, everybody had to go work at home and, and students had to participate in class from home. And many of us uh, as universities, some of what we needed to put in place to manage that really did put, it was, was painful in terms of how we had to uh, 
think about a student's privacy. So we're teaching a student at home. The student is in his or her apartment. They're inviting us into, into their home. So in that situation, we really have to be careful about how we treat that invitation because it is um, even more intense than simply the data that we have on, on our systems. I think that's really important. We currently have a situation, I think everybody is trying to figure out how do we deal with keeping the workplace safe um, kind of as we're coming out of the pandemic, uh, while still uh, valuing a person's decision uh, around letting us know what their status is for vaccinations. So how do we uh, manage that uh, from the common good perspective while protecting the individual? And, and I would say what I've seen with in my own organization and with other organizations is really finding a way to protect the individual's information, keeping things at a, a more um, dashboardy level, so not uh, sharing individual information, even if it makes it harder for us to uh, administratively do something, right? I, we don't share vaccine status because even though it would be easier for somebody to get their job done if they knew this person was vaccinated, we instead find other ways to, to do that. So, Todd, I'm sure in the ivory tower, tower, they're not counting their good karmas when they're making mm. decisions, right? They're thinking business. And there's nothing wrong with it. That's the role that they chose. Whether you talk about ethical and transparent practices that a business should use, and whether in the ivory tower, this, the top-level executives or you know, the midline managers and or the field staff, everyone always has this predicament and they're always in the crossroads and they have to choose things. But that's part of the, part of it is the culture, part of it, that individual, what the environment we give them and whatever their upbringing, all of that kind of plays a role. Similarly, the data security and privacy, while I agree with you, Helen, my, my take on that was you did it because someone came because not too long ago when the compliance mandates were not that huge. CISOs used to go beg for money just to get mm -hmm. a simple security-related stuff put in and privacy-related investments. So talk about these two. Then you talk about, uh, you know, the worker health and safety, right? And that is typically in manufacturing environments. So you would do a lot for product safety and quality, and you've got companies which are dedicated to give a seal of approval, but there is no company which is allowed to come in, which gives a seal of approval to the worker health and safety. If you were to think about it, they're always not-for-profit organizations who are trying to do advocacy for worker health and safety. So it's not my soapbox that I'm talking about. That's why this topic was created. So Todd, coming to you, can we turn the ship where we just don't have to have these discussions where we are... Uh, can we converge the agenda, if you will? So this doesn't look like a nice to have. It is kind of converged into the basic agenda, especially when the customers themselves are crying and are appealing to say, I will give you more business. I would stay with you if you did the right thing. Yeah, I think it comes down to being a value proposition, right? It has to be embedded into the culture of the organization with which you work. So COVID is a good example. We really placed a lot of emphasis on health 
and well-being of our workers. Still today, many of us are remote, uh, as you can tell from my background. Uh, we're remote, we're working from home. It's to ensure that we maintain works or safety. Over the summer, we're doing a whole bunch of upgrades to our HVAC systems by putting in micro, uh, microbial filtration and things in our older buildings to make sure that when we can come back, which is on tap to be fall, that we're well positioned to be able to make sure that workplace safety is first and foremost. In addition to that, each one of the cabinet members have worked with each line manager to identify for their particular needs, how do we best support and the needs of our uh, various stakeholders, students, faculty, and staff to the best of the ability, but while keeping everybody safe. So we've had to identify a number of ways that we can provide grace and give flexibility mm -hmm. to those workers who may have childcare issues because yeah. kids are not in school right now. So adjust their schedule accordingly, uh, allow them to work off hours, uh, you know, allow them to do four tens. Some of these things mm -hmm. were uh, almost forgotten for years mm -hmm. in a number of institutions. We couldn't even have the conversations that remote work would be fully supported. Now in a post COVID world, that's the reality. And so how do we make sure that our, uh, the forefront, in the forefront of our minds are worker safety. And it's not a regulatory requirement. It's mm -hmm. not because we have to do it because Cal OSHA says it, otherwise we're going to be fined. Rather, it's the right thing to do because that then engenders trust mm -hmm. and helps you to have a more productive and healthy organization. So uh, by your point, Todd, that, you know, COVID taught us a lot of lessons, right? We were, we are not, not say we are the same humans, but we have started changing our perspective, our perspective has broadened. I agree with you on that. So Helen, when we come back, one is to you and your executive team members thinking about it, having a bigger vision and, and whatever is the best interest of the organization overall, you will take some decisions. But then talk about mid-managers, talk about people who are the field staff. They have a job to do and they're measured based on the job they have. Yes, they get some, you cut them some slack because of COVID, but it'll only go so far. And then you would expect them to do things in a certain way, but they will follow the overall culture, the overall tone of the organization. So they say, you get the product safety first, forget what is there for the worker's health. I'm just, just making a point. And that supervisor on the floor will somehow get that message, implied message, that make a better product, no matter what happens to the workers' health and safety. How and at to what level can you go in terms of making sure what was discussed in the ivory tower, even on a town hall meeting, gets mm -hmm. practiced truly by people at the field level? Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back and talk more. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjo Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. 
your supervisors, your field staff, they would act based on what you inspect and also what you expect from them. They would always, I would not, you know, uh, gross, there will not be a gross generalization, but many of them are too busy getting their job done. So the tone, the culture, the implied expectations, sometimes even explicit, uh, explicitly stated expectations drive what they do. And that mean those things may not always align to what was thought and spoken about at the top level, because a lot of things happen in closed doors, which could be in direct conflict. So how do you prevent such conflicts in, in, in what is communicated and, and what is implied, which is in, 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 which is in contrast to what was expected at the organizational level so that it can be seen as an environmentally and socially conscious enterprise? Well, I think what you're talking about there is some misalignment between, you know, kind of the stated vision or mission of of the organization and and, um, how it's communicated down through the organization. I I think the only way to ensure that on a day-to-day basis, we're respecting, you you use the topic of, of worker safety, for example, if that is truly important to the organization, then line supervisors and managers, that will be included as part of their performance evaluations. It won't be simply about how did you, um, how many widgets did you produce, uh, but it will be how many days free of workplace accidents did you have. So I think that that's a critical piece as to align the performance evaluation with the stated objectives of the the organization. I think it's important to provide training and um, uh, orientation to supervisors in this area. Uh, Going back to the diversity uh, discussion, we can't expect supervisors to know, to, to automatically just magically act to create a more welcoming environment if we don't give them the tools to do so. So I think training is a critical piece of that and providing that training um, to our, our line supervisors and our managers. Um, and finally, in most organizations, certainly here, uh, while this may be more on the compliance side or this maybe is more of the stick than the carrot, you know, we we have an ethics hotline. Uh, any worker who feels that a supervisor has um, engaged in some activity that that puts them in danger can can report it anonymously and and they do and and they're not you know that's it. so that is something that we take seriously we get a report uh we we follow up we see what's what needs to be corrected and we take corrective action with it with the individual in question and usually the corrective action is just training and it's not necessarily that the person is a, a bad person or they they need to be fired um Finally, I I want to note one other area that maybe is specific to higher ed um, that kind of illustrates some of this. Our our faculty, um, they, you know, you could argue, it's a little different to, you know, you're on a line producing a product, but our faculty, the the service that they provide is to our students in the classroom. And so their goal is to educate the students. So they could be, you know, if you think about it, they could be evaluated based on, you know, how many A's they produce or something. They're not, but, you know, 
one of the things that's critical to our faculty evaluation is the student evaluation. The student evaluation is a really um, great tool to ensure that a faculty member is uh, treating a student with respect, and they are, are something that I think universities use uh, both to help the faculty and to ensure that students um, that are, are we're taking our principles into the classroom on a daily basis. So Todd, to build upon uh, what Helen responded, one was she mentioned there's a misalignment. Another is the governance process that while the person may have understood, but something may have caused them that predicament and maybe they did not have anyone to fall back uh, on and or when they spoke to someone, they gave a different so-called coaching to these individuals, mm -hmm. or they simply did not feel motivated enough that if something was going wrong, they did not want to report or do anything with it because they say, okay, I've got a job to do. I know you talk about the socially, quote unquote, socially and environmentally conscious. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I, get, I need my paycheck. And a lot of that can happen within the organization. So how do you charge these people up? Yeah, I think to Helen's point, there's a multitude of methods that you'd have to use. People have to be held accountable to the ethical standards that you believe your culture should espouse. They can't just be espoused and not actually done. They need practical applications. So I think HR has to be heavily involved in terms of training. Like uh, Helen said, it has to be formal. It has to be very specific. It has to be clear. You have to say, these are our ethical standards. These are the expectations to which you will be held. And these are examples of behaviors that aren't acceptable. And you will be held accountable to that standard. So staff are held accountable via our regular uh, performance review process. Faculty held accountable very similarly through largely student evaluation. So triangulating and making sure these data points are collected in a cohesive way, in a centralized way, that you can then point to not just at a regulatory level because our accreditor wants to know X, Y, or Z, rather for own internal consumption and betterment, uh, I think that's going to be key. We did that several years ago in our employee handbook where we uh, annually update it, but we mm -hmm. make sure that everybody understands what we expect in terms of this contract that we have with you. And we hold everyone everyone across the organization up and down the chain of command to that same standard. It's not just, well, this is good for the line workers, but it's not good for the ivory tower, as you were saying earlier, right? No, it's across the board. And anyone has the ability to call someone out in an anonymized way such that we can take substantive action because it's not, it's less about being punitive. It's more about fixing the underlying yeah. issue so that you can make sure that you're living your core values. And one of our core values is ethical reasoning. So Helen, how are you guys at all being inclusive in terms of the, even the design process? Because if you see the adoption will be automatic if people from the field staff level all the way up had something to say about how we design this enterprise culture, like almost like a bottom up mm -hmm. for it to not be that, oh, you have created a playbook and now you're going to go down and do 20,000 hours of training only to find that X percentage of people don't like it or adopt it, Right. So is this an inclusive process by design or is this a few heroes, if you will, are trying to pull this off? Well, well let me um, respond to that with an example. You know, Todd mentioned that at his university, uh, they've got a cabinet level position that focuses on diversity and they have a group uh, with staff that um, 
that impact, that implement or, or work on the, this topic. Uh, same here at Chapman, we also um, several years ago uh, realized we needed to do some work in this area. And so we created a diversity um uh, we have a diverse a strategic plan around diversity that's rolled into our university strategic plan. But when we began that process several years ago, we engaged our students, our staff, and our faculty through a series of conversations. There were literally hundreds of people I- involved in creating the diversity strategic plan. And while maybe that doesn't get buy-in of everybody in the community, it, it, and it takes longer. It takes longer than a a few people in the ivory tower kind of uh, just kind of pontificating and rolling something out, but it gets some buy-in. And that's, I think, the critical piece because um, without the buy-in, you won't have the kinds of behaviors and acceptance that you need. So it's engaging the community at every level and taking the time to do that and really listening because people will bring different perspectives on on some of these very complicated topics. And so it's important to really listen um, to what the community has to say and weave that into what you're working on. I think, Helen, I'd like to add to that. I think we've both talked about training, which is absolutely Mm -hmm. pivotal because it's formalized and it's something you can point to and it has standards wrapped around it so you know how people are supposed to act in practical application. But I think there's also those frequent and meaningful opportunities that are maybe less formal, maybe Mm -hmm. lunch and learns, uh, maybe informal training by the CDIO group. Uh, maybe it's also a visiting lecturer on a topic that relates to that to get people thinking in that way. Uh, other success activities we have around multicultural services, mm-hmm. commencement activities. Um, right now, for example, I'm a part of a DEI book club where we're uh, learning more about what it means to be a Hispanic serving institution in practice. How do we define and live that servingness? And so we're collectively at the cabinet level and across the organization talking openly and honestly about what that means to us and how do we do that in practical application, not because it's a checkbox exercise, rather because it's what we should do and it's embedded in our culture and our values. And so it's those opportunities to involve and talk with individuals across the institution that are invaluable, that reinforce all of those learnings in that culture. And, and, you know, it reminds me, Todd, of of something that you mentioned earlier. It's kind of that power of storytelling, right? Mm. That, you know, I know we want to measure by numbers and we're IT people, so we love the numbers. But the power of storytelling um, really can make a difference when you hear someone's story of how they were not included, uh, can make a much have a, have a much bigger impact on me as an individual than something that says you know we we got whatever percentage we have of a certain number so so mm-hmm. yeah so let's take a quick break listeners when we come back let's talk technology because yeah. you are technology people mm-hmm. and yes we spoke about technology being part of literally the very dna of any organization <laughs> today So why should we spare the socially and environmentally conscious enterprise agenda? So starting from planning, like, you know, almost embedding yourself in the DNA, starting from the planning part, the strategy, the information flow, the analytics, the the monitoring, the governance, 
and continuous improvement, like the feedback loop and the continuous improvement effort. How would you embed technology or rather exploit technology so that we have numbers, we have qualitative and quantitative data, and we have ease of workflow so that people find it encouraging and they're encouraged to do these things. How do you do, how do you go about it? What have you tried? What worked, what did not work? So when we come back, Todd, spill it. Talk soon. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Technology, the very foundation, the very DNA of an organization. Can it really help? improve the veracity, the velocity, the, the momentum of these initiatives that we can take, all, take on to build it a socially and environmentally conscious enterprise? Yeah, I think that um, technology, we're the connective tissue. We're the, the plumbing. We connect everything together, right? And so uh, some things that come to mind is ensuring you have a single repository so you can have that single view of that truth, whether that's knowledge management, right? How do you do that properly so that all of the data is collected, not in silos and in paper files elsewhere. It's digital. It's available to be reported on. Um, I think creating those meaningful and smart metrics tied to the outcomes and goals so that you can actually quantitatively pull out that data and say, this is making sense. This seems like we're on the right track. This is how we know. Uh, But I think it's also beyond that, you've got to have a lot of that quantitative data. And so that's something that we're working on moving forward with. We're more quantitative at this point, but qualitatively, how do we take and mine the data that our surveys are telling us where people have Mm -hmm. open responses to something, where they're telling us how they feel? How do you work through that process to pull out nuggets of truth and tie those things together in such a way that makes sense. That's the next level for us. Uh, Helen, I don't know what you're doing at Chapman as it relates to those type of things, but that's definitely on the forefront of where where we're heading in terms of business intelligence and data governance Mm -hmm. around this Yeah, and I think the other thing about kind of taking that um, one, you know, one source of the truth approach also helps to protect, to to better protect the data and ensure the privacy, which we've discussed previously, that rather than having pockets of data all over the organization where maybe privacy becomes more of an issue. I I think the other area that where IT has a critical role in in these initiatives is really in, we need to, as IT professionals, infuse um, 
equity and inclusion and into our design processes so that when we roll systems out that they're not that they're inclusive of, of everyone a couple of examples you know in in when we think about perhaps the the transgendered community um we have had a ton of work to do as IT professionals to go back to our systems and make sure that our uh, transgender students could find a way to identify themselves as transgender, whereas previously our systems asked if you were male or female. So that seems maybe like, um, well, it's not a small thing, but those are, are the kinds of things I think that we need to really focus on as IT professionals and ensure, kind of gets back to Sanjog's earlier point, to ensure that people at all level of the, levels of the organization, that our programmers are paying attention to this so that when we roll something out, it reflects the community that we're in. It's, it's having UI developers, uh, user interface developers, who are really thinking about um, including uh, how how our websites appear? Are they including? Are they accessible? Uh, can people read them? Do people see themselves in them? Those kinds of things are really important. And um, you know, and I would like to kind of talk maybe uh, about uh, if we're working in our, in an artificial intelligence kind of environment, um, how to avoid building in biases into our mm -hmm. systems. Uh, you know, AI is a great tool for us. Todd, you mentioned the more qualitative data we want to go out and, and see maybe uh, kind of word analysis, but how, how do we make sure that we're not training those AI systems to include a, bi a bias that we might have as developers? So thinking through some of those things I, I think are important. So, Helen, if you were to really uh, kind of audit your organization or any organizational leader could have audited their organization and were to have a checklist of capabilities, specific capabilities that way they should have and check them whether they exist or not or if they exist to what level, which capabilities are critical to making sure that an organization is doing the right things, not just the things right, the right things in terms of data security, privacy, gender and race diversity, inclusion, worker safety, quality, et cetera. Oh, that's a, that's a long list. I, you know, I'm not saying different. that for each of them, yeah, but yeah. there would be some core <laughs> fundamental set of capabilities and organizations must, must have. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, I think a fundamental skill that we all need to have as as people and that we uh, perhaps need to work with everyone through the organization on is the ability to um, listen and to empathize. So empathy, I think, is a, is a deep skill um, and it can be learned, uh, you know, and, and it needs to be practiced so that as whatever level you're at in the organization, you're not just thinking about things from your own perspective, but thinking about it from the perspective of, of others, which means bringing in their, their different viewpoints. So I think empathy and listening are skills uh, that, you know, we don't always work on, and they're areas where we need we need to to work. So even when you're thinking about privacy, right? Put yourself in the position of the persons who 
person whose data you're holding and ask yourself how you would want that data to be treated. I think that that would go a long way toward um, changing our approach to to how we handle data. So there, I think, critical skills uh, that IT professionals need to to continue to develop and that we as CIOs need to put value on. Whereas in the past, I think we've valued, you know, what technical experience did this person come in with? Technical skills matter, um, but they need to be uh, complemented by those skills that we thought of as soft skills in the area of empathy and listening. So one last question for you, Todd. If government, academia, think tanks, commercial organizations, all of them had to collaborate and were to support the leaders within a given organization so that they can help fulfill this agenda of becoming or that organization becoming environmentally and socially conscious enterprise individually as well as along their value chain, what would it take? That's a big question for the last few minutes. <laughs> I mean, the collaboration, let's talk about what level of collaboration or what type of collaboration is required. Well, I think primary to that, coming from a mission-driven institution, it needs to tie back to your culture. It needs to be the mission of the organization to do this. So the best case would be these uh, entities are collaborating together based upon what they should be doing and they know what they're doing for the betterment of everyone at large, not just about profit, not just about, you know, making their shareholders happy. Rather, it's about doing the right thing for the sake of right, right? So making sure they're doing all that they can, collaborating together, uh, whether it's in a regulatory environment or not, the reality is, is if we could collaborate at that level for altruistic reasons as much as possible, not just focusing on profit, I think we'd get a lot closer, a lot faster. Once again, thank you so much, uh, Todd and Helen, for sharing your insights and your experiences in the way your organizations and others could really work together at all levels and enable an environmentally and socially conscious enterprise. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, hope you enjoyed. Got a few nuggets. Go implement them in your organization. Please find us on social media. Subscribe to our podcast. And once again, thank you so much for listening to CTN. This is your host, Sanjog All, signing off. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Thank you again for listening.